I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. It's NAIDOC week. What is NAIDOC week? So we take the opportunity to yarn again with Aboriginal journalist, broadcaster and podcaster, Charles Parkiner. Along the way, we'll talk about truth and treaty, and we'll land on some simple steps that all of us can take to make a difference. Charles Parkiner, welcome to our NAIDOC week edition of Making a Difference. Steve, thanks so much. It's an absolute honour to be back talking to you again, mate. Oh, likewise. Let's not go down that path too much. Tell me, what have you been doing since we last spoke? Well, it's been quite a few months since we last spoke. Well, the last three months in particular, I've moved into a Ford Transit van as my full-time home and work studio, and I've just been, after a month of being up in New South Wales, seeing my daughters, who I hadn't seen for so long, of course, because of COVID, I've been travelling around Victoria, establishing connections with uh, traditional owner groups and Aboriginal organisations setting up a whole series of, of interviews that we're looking to do over the next, well, it depends how long I'll stay on this earth, but the next few years at least. That's fantastic. And we, we touched on that project the last time we spoke. We did. And I really want to come back to that and so we'll leave, we'll leave that towards the end. But sure. where we started today, Charles, is the fact that it is NAIDOC Week this week. Yep. Can you explain from your point of view, what's NAIDOC Week? Well, NAIDOC Week does go back to the 1920s and it's been through a number of iterations. Here in Victoria, it is, it's almost over a two-week period nowadays. It's great. But it's a week where we do celebrate so much of the Aboriginal culture from all over Australia. And that's one of the great things about what I'd refer to as urban Aboriginal communities is that we have people from everywhere you know, you take a square mile of Victoria and you will, or Melbourne, and you will have people from 20, 30, 40, 50 different Aboriginal nations from right across the country. So there's this wonderful mishmash of culture, the sharing of culture, which has become known, as I mentioned, as uh, urban Aboriginality. It's an opportunity that week or that two weeks to really highlight the different cultures, the arts, the pride that... Aboriginal people have in their culture and their heritage and share it with other people. I mean, we we so often say in the community, well, it started off as, as, as a day, became a week in Melbourne. We're almost at a fortnight of it. Well, we want it to be a month and then the entire year. And that's what we hope. And we think in Victoria, we can we, achieve that. We could get there. So it's, tell me, I'll get this wrong, National Aboriginal and Islander Day Observance Committee. Committee. Yeah, that's right. So that really goes way back. But whilst that's the original acronym, it's just NAIDOC. But it really just stands for sharing our culture. It sort of goes beyond Reconciliation Week. It, It really is a week or a fortnight of culture. And that's why there are so many art exhibitions and various other events that are happening that promote Aboriginal culture. Let's dig a bit deeper. Sure. So... You touched on the fact that there is a bit of a history and it goes back to the sort of 1920s and 30s. What were some of the key drivers, I suppose, for the day? 
When I think about the origins of NAIDOC, I, I think back to the Aborigines Advancement League or the uh, whatever it was in those days, uh, William Cooper especially. Uh, William Cooper, for those of, of the audience who may not know, was, in my opinion, one, one of the greatest statesmen this country has ever seen. And you'll please note that I didn't say greatest Aboriginal statesman. It's one of the greatest statesmen full stop this country has ever seen. What he did, not just for his own people, and we were yarning about this beforehand, but I do want to throw this in, but what he did to raise awareness of what was happening to the the Jewish community in pre-World War II uh, Germany was, was leading. I mean, he was raising awareness of what was happening whilst the colonial governments were saying, no, 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 it's not happening. We're just going to follow along with the mother country and ignore it and peace in our time and all that sort of stuff. Cooper, who was always this immaculately dressed man with his whiskers and his tie and his suit and his beautiful moustache, you know, he was thumping on the doors in Canberra and and raising awareness of this. But, I mean, that's just one thing, but that speaks to the calibre of the man. But it does go to say that he was a human rights activist before we knew what human rights activists were, presumably, Charles. Absolutely. I, well, I, I don't know if, you know, before we knew what a human rights activist well, was. Maybe but gave I think that name. Yeah. I, I believe so. I believe that there actually is a grove or a garden named after him in Israel for the advocacy that he delivered in those years. You know, he was recognised around the world. He's a phenomenal man. But he and various others really pushed the awareness of the Aboriginal voice, the, the need for the Aboriginal voice. And, uh, and a part of that really, it's become well, what it is now. Uh, people want to know about the culture. Once they start to understand the culture, uh, of Aboriginal people and the various mobs around the country and the state, they start to understand the hurt or some of the hurt that's been inflicted on people and, most relevantly this year, on country because the hurt on country is is phenomenal. Yeah, there's a couple of segues there, Charles, and one is I should actually point out a statement of the obvious that obviously I'm no relation to William Cooper. We share a name. <laughs> And, you never know. And, and never that's know. all. And I, and I suppose the other thing I should say, of course, is that you and I are having a yarn as a couple of mates and, and you say often to me that, you know, you don't speak every other Aboriginal person. Oh, you can't. Is, Look, any Aboriginal person that would say they speak for all Aboriginal people, well, first of all, I don't think that person exists <laughs> because no, no one's that silly. Uh, we all have different experiences. We all have different mobs, different backgrounds, just like... It's no different to non-Aboriginal people, you know, no different to the Greek community or the Vietnamese community or the Somali community. You know, it takes a collection of people to come together. So, no, we don't speak for our own mob, not just one. No. So let's – moving back on to NADOC, so the theme for 2021, Hill Country. Wonderful theme. Wonderful theme. I love it. And it's been – I'm going to jump in even before you ask a question, no, Steve. No, well, you, I knew you were going to do that anyway. So One of the, the things I've noticed in doing my travels over the past several months, and travels I expect to continue for many years to come, is the amount of damage that has been done to country through pasteurisation. Uh, I remember driving back from Mildura through Robinvale and uh, through to Broadford, then, then back down to – Melbourne. But that first part of the journey was just on the left and the right of this crappy little highway. I forgot what road it was, whatever the one is between Mildura and Robinvale. Terrible bit of road as you continue. It was just bare, 
and it was horrific. And I think one of the most horrible things I saw was one little homestead close by the side of the highway had an ornamental garden with cacti, these huge cacti. And I thought, what an abomination. What a horrible, horrible thing, the, these cactus plants that didn't belong anywhere. I think they belong in Mexico, don't they? Oh, well, they don't, definitely don't belong out in between Mildura and Robinvale, let me tell you that, mate. But the fact is that what would have been beautiful country once has just been pillaged, degraded. Oh, it's it, horrific. It's a bit tragic, really, that the high-profile destruction, you know, Jerkhan Gorge, the, the eel at Lake Bolac, yeah. that gets publicity. But, but what I'm hearing from you is that it's the subtle degradation as well. It's a subtle degradation. And look, I want to jump away from the degradation because I, I want to focus right now on what a lot of the traditional owner groups are doing. Uh, with the support of a lot of cases of local governments and state government, because it's a partnership in many cases. But you look here in Melbourne at the NARAP team with the Wadanjeti Woiwurrung, who have, uh, with Uncle Dave Wandon and, and various other people, have been really diving back into their culture of land management and protecting species and promoting those species. We see that this is happening in Tungarung country, just north of us, and the work that's being done with that registered Aboriginal party. I was recently up at Mildura, as I mentioned, mm. and the First Peoples of the Milo Mali, the registered Aboriginal party up there. You know, all these traditional owner groups, and that's just a few of them because there are so many that are doing great work, they're developing programs where they are reclaiming, in a lot of cases, starting off with small bits of land, devoting those to just native species, species native to that area, and then expanding it from there. And we're seeing some exciting things happening. Every single traditional owner group I visit on country around Victoria, they are all doing amazing things to work with the community to bring in and train up Aboriginal rangers. Uh, the Middle O'Malley were telling me they have recently brought on through a state government supported initiative, 22 Aboriginal rangers to wow. work on country, to work on waters, to really get things back to where they were. And it's going to take lifetimes. Mm. It's going to take lifetimes. It ticks a lot of boxes though, Charles, doesn't it, in the sense it's we sometimes forget that this nation was eventually a reluctant signatory to the United Nations Declaration oh, on the Rights very of Indigenous Peoples. Yes, one of only, I think, two who refused to sign initially. But yeah. we got there eventually. Eventually, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, what it talks about, as I recall, is social, cultural and economic determination. So ticking boxes around cultural determination and choice in relation to country, I presume, is a, a good start. It all comes down to determination and self-determination. I, I like that term and that's something that, again, you and I have discussed about off-air many times, that everywhere I look, I'm always looking for where's evidence of self-determination. And when you see the registered Aboriginal parties and even just non-registered Aboriginal parties but active bodies of Aboriginal people in some areas of Victoria where there's no rap, they are all looking to reclaim their culture, reclaim their language, reclaim their heritage, which goes back to country. Mm. From what I have seen and heard in Victoria, I've never heard any Aboriginal person say, we own this country or we owned this country beforehand. No, this was our country, 
this was the country that that nurtured us, that gave us what we needed, that we cared for and that we understood. You know, that's what it's all about. And when Aboriginal people are reclaiming that as part of their self-determination, that's an exciting thing. You keep segueing, Charles. I love the fact that you've segued back to your project. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. No, that's fine. So when we last spoke, and it was October, November last year, Mm -hmm. and you were just setting up your van to go off and find positive stories, uh, because you are a journalist and broadcaster and podcaster and all of those things we talked about in the introduction. So what have you found? What are some of the stories on your travels that you've uncovered so far? The biggest thing that I've found is is frustration, first of all, within a lot of communities. And it's not just Aboriginal communities, but I'm talking communities in general. Because let's just be aware very quickly, I know it's another quick segue, that Aboriginal communities often have allies, non-Aboriginal allies, and they're very, very important. But what I'm finding in, in my journeys is that people are frustrated that they will see in the media, most media, uh, negative stories about Aboriginal people and tragic stories about Aboriginal people, but rarely do we see the positive stories. So what I've been looking for are, as we've mentioned, stories of positivity. So I do not wish to be involved in political stories. I don't wish to be involved in tragic stories. And some people have said to me, well, isn't that avoiding the reality of the situation? Well, my, my belief is and my response is, There are plenty of of media outlets that will deal with those. NITV does an amazing job with covering the politics and the tragedy. You've got Koori Mail, the newspaper, the National Aboriginal Newspaper and National Indigenous Time, another one, uh, primarily online. They're all dealing with the politics. They're dealing with the tragedy. They're dealing with all those sorts of things. They have limited people on the ground, especially here in Victoria, to focus on the positive stories. And these are stories that really align to what we've been talking about, stories of getting and training Aboriginal rangers to get in and help in reclaiming land and healing country. Some of the stories I want to do about recovering language, recovering culture, because, you know, we had around about in this country 250 Aboriginal languages prior to colonisation, there are not many languages that are native spoken anymore. The Yorta Yorta have established a dictionary and they've had that for quite a few years. Wadanjeri Woiwadang, there's a thriving movement behind that language and we're seeing that all over the place. These are the positive stories and these are the stories that Aboriginal people that I'm meeting want to have told because they're not being told in the media. Well, and the other thing, presumably, Charles, is you can't be what you can't see. And if we're going to move forward, we've got to get those stories out. I quite agree. Just on that theme, Charles, so whether it's the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, there are a raft of reports that talk about social choice, cultural choice, connection to land, economic independence. Mm. What are the good things that you see happening particularly in that social and cultural area? Steve, really interesting question and one of the things that comes to mind and I think the most poignant thing that comes to mind is that more and more we're seeing Aboriginal communities being established throughout, we can just say Melbourne right now. There are a lot of gathering places. For example, down at Hastings, there's the Willamoraine Gathering Place. Uh, out east, there's uh, Mullum Mullum. 
I'm really quite honoured to have been elected as the chairman of another gathering place at Heidelberg West, which is the Barbun and Beek Aboriginal Gathering Place. And But what's exciting is that we are seeing these places becoming a focal point within community, but it's not just for blackfellas. It's not just for blackfellas. Uh, Mullum Mullum is a great example of this where you have hundreds of members. I know they've got hundreds of members. And a lot of those members or friends of Mullum Mullum are non-Aboriginal people, yet they're all working together. Now, that itself, I don't care from what angle you're looking at, is, is a wonderful thing. On a recent trip to Willow Moraine, well, pre-COVID trip to Willow Moraine down at Hastings, I met a young man, uh, very, very black, you know, I mean, there's no mistaking this fellow was, you know, an Aboriginal man and he didn't know where he came from. He had no idea what his mob was. Like me, he was a disconnected Aboriginal man. Try as he could, he could not find out his mob. Yet, as far as he was concerned, his mob was Willem Moraine. And I'll guarantee at Mullum Mullum, it's the same thing there. In Barbun and Beak, my members like to refer to me as I'm a Barbun and Beak man. You know, and we're seeing more and more of this. And this is building strength in community. It's building relationships with local governments, which is so important, so important, because as far as I'm concerned, while state government does a lot in this in this particular state, federal government, well, they try to do some they, good, I'm sure. But the federal government, never particularly good at local delivery of Very, programs, very slow. Local yeah. government, we know, is the grassroots stuff. But we're seeing these relationships building. And they're building month on month. And I think from a social perspective, which leads then to a government perspective, that's one of the great things that I see. These local gathering places starting up and they're springing up all over the place and they're just providing a haven for Aboriginal people to feel safe. And once you feel safe, you are then able to explore your culture whether it's urban Aboriginal culture or you're meeting up with people from your own mob. But that is exciting stuff and it's a space to watch. Tell us, so the leaders of local councils, local community organisations yep. who are making a difference, what are they doing? Oh, wow, they're listening. First and foremost, they're listening. And that's really great to see. I think one of the first indicators of a healthy local government uh, authority or area is do they have an Aboriginal Advisory Committee. That's the first thing. Most local governments, as, as you know, Steve, from your work uh, with the VLGA, have advisory committees, and typically they're going to be multicultural advisory committees or aged advisory committees. They're the ones that really, in most cases, listen. And that is an exciting thing. And once they start listening, and active listening, <laughs> we know there's a big difference there, they're going to start educating themselves. Look, it, it may start off as something as small as, okay, we're going to fly the Aboriginal flag. Yeah, we're going to make it a standard practice that we will have an acknowledgement of country. Things grow from there. From little things, big things grow. We know that. But that's what I see with these local governments. And don't forget, local government is there also to advocate up the chain of command to state government and then up to federal government. That's where people are making changes. And interestingly, the last few years, that's been the trend in the government approach to cultural change. Oh, that's why I always encourage local mobs to work with local governments. That's where it starts. Yeah. 
connection to country, social determination. Yeah. Well, you're going to find that local government will have more involvement in the local country than the state government does or the federal government does. So if you want to bring about change, will you go to that government or level of government which has most feet on the ground, the park rangers, for example, all those sorts of people. Well, they're not employed by the flame and state or federal government, employed by local government. That's where change is. Charles, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of media about the establishment of the Uruk Truth Commission. Mm. What's your take on on those events? Uh, Look, I think the Uruk Truth Commission is probably one of the most exciting initiatives that we've seen in this state for a long time. And given that we've seen a lot of things happening in Victoria in particular that are pretty exciting on this front, that that's saying a lot. And it's definitely not diminishing the the other initiatives. For example, the First People's Assembly Victoria, the Stolen Generations Redress Scheme, various other things. But the Uruk Truth Commission, and I think especially with the announcement of the commissioners recently, uh, you've got uh, names such as Arnie Eleanor Burke and uh, Sue Ann Hunter. And these are amazing people who are heading up, I think, one of the most difficult jobs that an Aboriginal person could be given or an Aboriginal senior person could be given, which is is delving into the truth of everything. <laughs> I mean, the remit is pretty damn broad. I was speaking to Marcus Stewart, one of the co-chairs of the First People's Assembly of Victoria last week, and uh, we're just getting a bit of information about this, and this was a day or so before they announced the names of the commissioners. And, and he reiterated something that has been said all along, that is you cannot have treaty without truth. And that makes sense. And if people don't understand that, well, just reflect on it for a bit because if you're having a treaty, a treaty is intended to redress wrongs. Well, you've got to understand what those wrongs are. And we're talking about stolen wages, stolen generations. Let's be honest, the the rape of Aboriginal women, the massacres that have taken place over the centuries here. I mean, there's a lot of pain that our education system has ignored for so long. Well, the Truth Commission is going to, I believe, shed light on those darkened areas. We're looking to have a preliminary report by around about the middle of June 2022. The Uruk Truth Commission has been initially given a three-year gig to do what they need to do, and I I don't know exactly what they're going to do. It's it's just too early days. The commissioners are about one or two days into the job, but the reality is that the commission has a bit of an open-ended book there. They have been given the initial three years, but there's knowledge it may well take longer. And I'd be surprised if it doesn't take a lot longer. Uh, I fully expect and hope the commission is still going when I'm, you know, I shuck these mortal coils because there's so much truth that has to be told. Big thing is there's going to be a lot of trauma. A lot of trauma when the truth does start to come out where a lot of our people and our elders start to talk about what they remember and the stories they were told. We're going to see some fairly horrific stuff and we're going to see even more examples of the reality of transgenerational trauma. 
You know, it's a big job, but it's an important job. And the Europe Truth Commission will play a huge part in in treaty. It'll play a huge part in righting the educational wrongs that have been inflicted upon generations of Australians. We hope that our young people will have an educational system where the truth is told. And where truth is told, understanding grows. And that almost brings us back to a lot of what we've discussed already today. I've also picked up, Charles, a recurring theme around listening. And listening, just absolutely. The importance of listening. When we last spoke, you told a story of your elder and your journey and the advice that your elder gave about your journey. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Taljum. <laughs> and that was about bundle and about choices that you make and yep. about risk. What's the future look like? Oh, well, for those people who may not have heard that particular story, I do have an elder and uh, he is a, a very proud Palawa Tangarang and he's about 73 years old. He lives in, uh, in Darabin, the Darabin area. Uh, he is a wonderful man. He's been in front of the courts over 100 times. His favourite catch cry to the magistrates is that, oh, you can't judge me because I don't recognise your jurisdiction. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. It's got him in so much trouble, though. God love him. But he's been uh, my cultural guide in a lot of things, and, and I draw a lot of strength from him. So it's really not strange that, you know, a 63-year-old man, which I am, has has elders. We all have elders. I mean, as soon as we stop wanting to learn, what the hell are we doing? As we all have things to learn. But uh, when I first had the idea of moving into a van and travelling around Victoria and just promoting positive Aboriginal stories, I drove over to Uncle Taljim's and said, oh, look, Uncle, I've got this, this stupid idea. There's no money in it, but this is what I want to do. It's going to cost me money, but I want to do. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and he's very gravelly voice, he just said, ah, oh, Charles, my boy, you know, I just got to trust in Bundrel and trust in the spirits and, uh, and do it. And I went home and I told my mother, who was, I think, 89 at that stage, and, uh, and said to mum, well, look, you know, when, when you decide to, to pass on mum, this is what I really need to do. And Uncle Taljim actually said that I have to trust in Bundrel and trust in the spirits. And she just looked up at me with these roomy eyes, you know, clouded with macular degeneration and just said, well, well, darling, if, if Uncle Taljim said so, then that's what you have to do. And I must admit I was a little bit resentful because I was looking for a way out of it. I was looking for the easier <laughs> life. Uh, but my mother, God rest her soul, and Uncle Taljim just had different, different plans for me. So it was always the plan from then on that when my mother died and she unfortunately died in September of last year of 2020 that I move into the van which I'd purchased previously and basically set up and and start doing this I had no idea what I was going to do no idea so when I jumped into the van in February and th had given everything away I mean everything I owned was now in the van drove away my first thought was you know what the f have I done you know, this has got to be the dumbest thing ever. I cannot go back. I don't have, you know, I, I couldn't afford to refurnish a house or pay the bond. I spent a month up in New South Wales, as I mentioned earlier, with my, with my daughters and then came back to Victoria and just started reaching out to the traditional owner groups and saying, look, this is what I'm doing. And fortunately through my previous work 
as uh, as a journalist in the in the black community. I had a lot of these contacts, and it's just that's what it is. I mean, we welcomed. I've I've got so many areas I need to get to because the registered Aboriginal parties or the elders or the the community leaders are sort of saying, well, okay, we've got a place for your van. You know, come on out. We've got all these stories to tell. Look, it's an exciting time of life. It is a busy time of life. I need to sit down and plan things better than I am. But the future, it just holds, hopefully, lots of positive stories that we can put into Koori Mail. And I've been very fortunate. Uh, the editor of Koori Mail, Rudy Maxwell, has said that, look, anything I decide to write based on my interviews that she will put into the newspaper. And we've just done the first of that, which was the recent unveiling or unfurling and flying of the Tangarung flag, which is a beautiful flag, and encourage people to do a bit of research into that. It's uh, quite an amazing thing. It's the first Victorian traditional owner group to have their own sovereign flag. Now, even the Attorney General, Jacqueline Symes, was there at the unveiling of the flag. It was a pretty emotional thing. Lots of people there, even on a weekday. Whereabouts, Charles? This was up at Broadford on uh, Tangarung country. And, uh, you know, I hope and I know that the Tangarung hope that very soon, right across the Tangarung country, north of the Wadangeti, they're part of the Kulin Nation, you will just see, you know, these beautiful ochre, black and gold flags. And they are stunning. Stunning. Charles, if that's the sort of thing you're finding without anything resembling a plan, long may you not have a plan. <laughs> Great to talk today, Charles Parkiner. Thanks so much. Steve, thank you so much indeed, mate. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, Make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.